Welcome to House to Home Podcast. It's here that we'll learn how to cultivate an eternal haven in our temporary world. So grab a cup of coffee, do the dishes, or even take a drive in your car. Whatever it is you do while listening, I hope you feel right at home. Welcome to House to Home Podcast. Mason and Bree here with you again today. Today we are going to be talking about what is classical education. If you listened to our last podcast, we talked about why education is important. And for the whole month of August, we are talking all about education, gearing up for school to be starting. So we hope that we can give you some more information today and some more resources. In this episode specifically, we are going to try to define, explore, basically just the basics of what a classical education is. So we can't dive into everything here. We're being brave and trying to talk about classical education, but it's a broad, broad thing. And we hope that you, again, will take what you hear and run with it. So be sure to check our podcast notes, check our resources that we give you on Instagram, and you can even look at our website. Hopefully we'll be sharing some more there as well. So are you ready? There's probably a lot of people out there who are kind of confused about what exactly classical education is. What does that even mean? So in this podcast, we're going to kind of try to walk through those really basic questions and just assume that you don't know anything about it. If you do, great. Um, You can learn along with us. Um, If not, then you'll probably learn some things in this podcast. So Mm -hmm. let's start with just a very basic question and just ask, what is classical education, Brie? It's sort of in the name. I like to get really practical. Mason likes to get really deep. So hopefully we will help explain all of these questions thoroughly for you. But it's sort of in the name, classical. When you think of something that is classic, in definition, that means over a period of time, it's been judged to be of highest quality. It's timeless. I like to think of timeless decor or timeless fashion, something that has stood the test of time, something that you can always kind of fall back on. Mason even liked to um, emphasize the fact that it doesn't necessarily mean it's old, right? Um, but it's timeless. It's that's totally different, right? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't just mean vintage either. I think that right. a lot of people when they hear classical education, they just think the good old way. And that's yeah. not necessarily what it is. Yeah, and then then you get into the question of, well, what is the good old way? Because there's lots of good old ways that you could fall into. So a classical education specifically involves the study of the ancient Greeks, um, Latin literature, philosophy, history. It's a broad education, but it has specific focuses. And so it's teaching us how to learn and to think, not necessarily what to learn or what to think. And it does this by focusing on the trivium, which includes grammar, logic or dialect, and rhetoric. And it seeks after the transcendentals, which are truth, beauty, and goodness. And we're gonna, don't worry, we're gonna explain these. Um, But basically a classical education, it emphasizes the liberal arts and it emphasizes books and it has a very, it produces a high literacy in people so that they can then take what they've learned and they can run with that. So they have a really good foundation that they can then 
use this to basically learn anything. It's teaching people how to learn and how to love learning. Yeah, it's, it's giving them a tool belt to know what tools to whip out and to apply to what things. So a, a person trained in a classical education should be able to pick up basically any book mm-hmm. and know what to do with it and yeah. how, how to find out at least what to do with it. They might pick up a book and realize, okay, I need to read two or three other books before I can read this book. But at the end of the day, they are intelligent enough, trained enough, I guess you could say, uh, that they know what to do when they don't know. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, not to be intimidated. Yeah. But almost to um, look at it as like a challenge and be willing to fail too, you know. it takes yeah. Sometimes it takes a lot of failing to get where you need to go. So to kind of sum up what a classical education is, I wanted to read off of classicalacademicpress.com. They have, is it Ambrose curriculum that mm-hmm. they sell on there? Um, and they basically just have a little blog that says what is classical education, so you can go and read the rest of this. But at the very beginning, it says classical education is like a very large museum with many beautiful, wonder-filled rooms that could be studied over a lifetime. It is a long tradition of education that has emphasized the seeking after truth, goodness, and beauty, and the study of the liberal arts and the great books. And I loved that it talked about classical education being like a large museum with many beautiful rooms, because that is what it is, and that is what true education is. It's so hard to talk about it and to pinpoint it, because it's like this big house, it's like this big home, and you can go into all the rooms, you can even go into the closets and the corridors and the nooks and crannies and keep learning. So that's kind of, we're introducing you to the big home of classical education, but it's your job to walk through the door and to find the different rooms, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I like that it uses the analogy of a museum rather than just a giant library too, Mm -hmm. because a classical education it really does kind of bring things alive because you're not so much, when you do read secondary sources and what I mean by that is basically books about other books. Um, So you're reading other people's works about other people, but the classical uh, tradition, what it does is it has you going to the primary sources, the actual people who are writing it. And when you read those people, that's when those works really come alive. So it really is more like a museum where you get to go and interact with the original mm-hmm. um, and of course they're not still alive most of the people that you're interacting with but it's not so much dead uh, like m- some people might think of a, a library it's alive and wonderful um, like a museum yeah I like that a lot that's good okay so you mentioned earlier the trivium what exactly is the trivium okay yeah so we learn in stages naturally as human beings this doesn't really even matter how you learn A lot of people will say, well, I learn through books best. Um, I learn through reading best. Or I learn, you know, being hands-on. This is kind of besides the point. Pretty much no matter who you are, you learn in the stages of the trivium. And so we've got grammar, logic or dialect, and rhetoric that I mentioned earlier. And so first would be grammar. And these are around kindergarten to sixth grade. And students naturally are given to memorization in this stage of life. So they would learn through songs or chants or rhymes. You can think of a child learning the alphabet or learning... The alphabet song. 
yeah, the alphabet song or remembering things um, like a foreign language. You know, a lot of times they say those are the years to learn a foreign language. And they're right because in these years, our minds are like a sponge. And we may not know exactly what we're going to use that alphabet for, but they can learn the letters of the alphabet nonetheless. And so in these stages, we really focus on the grammar. It's basically memorize, memorize, memorize. And then you would move on to logic, and that's around seventh grade through ninth grade. This is your teenage years, and teenagers are given towards arguing, right? And this gets on a lot of parents' nerves. Um, you may remember when you were a teenager, or maybe you have teenagers in the house, they want to know why. They are questioning authority, and it's natural. And so instead of getting annoyed with this stage or frustrated, we want to take this stage and teach them how to argue, um, teach them how to question rightly, not just to stand up against authority and butt heads with it, but to learn from it. And so they take what the teenagers are naturally going through at this time, and we teach them how to logically work this out in their mind. It's kind of like giving them the wisdom to argue well, and we talked about this in our um, Why is Education Important podcast, how if you don't have a good education, then you get frustrated because you can't communicate wisely. You can't communicate what you're feeling. You just end up giving up or lashing out, and we want to teach our teenagers not to do that, but how to argue their thoughts. And then you would move on to rhetoric, which is around 10th grade to 12th grade, and this is where a lot of our students are gaining independence. They're learning how to be persuasive, and so we would teach them how to do this through speaking and writing and other forms as well. And they get a great satisfaction in learning rather than a frustration. So they're really, in this stage, taking what they've learned and really like nailing it down and taking that and then knowing how to teach others. So um, I don't know, is it R.C. Sproul that said there's probably multiple people multiple people that have said this, but basically you don't really know something until you can teach it. <laughs> and I think you said that. I don't know. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but it's true. Until you start teaching something, you realize, I don't really know it as well as I thought I did. <laughs> so that's just kind of an, an overview of the trivium. I don't know if you have anything to add to I it. I was just going to say, uh, the cool thing about the trivium is, is it really focuses in on like the natural stages of human development. So grammar being like the early years where you're very um, pliable and able to be taught many things and take in a lot of information and also retain it uh, surprisingly well. So as Bree said, this is the time when a lot of the classical educators really uh, press in the languages mm -hmm. and you'll see like Latin a lot in classical <clears throat> education. Yep. Uh, sometimes Greek and other languages as well, but especially Latin. And they do this not just so you can have a cool extra language, um, and it's not even so much for practicality with like uh, foreign engagement. It's more so so that you can engage with history because um, a lot of the great works in the Western tradition were written in Latin, um, Greek as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I just think it's cool that it really focuses in on the stages that a human naturally goes to. It isn't some system that um, humans have just thought up on their own. Right. It, it kind of just looks at a human soul and the way that that develops over time and it works with that rather than against it. And that you can see the results are really, really good for that. That um, if you're trying to force someone to learn something, it doesn't work. 
And classical education is really good about working with the individual, not against it. Yeah, and so those, like, the stages of kindergarten through sixth grade, seventh through ninth, tenth through twelfth, that's kind of just, um, that that's going to vary, you know, for from person to person. But for the most part, it stays in that area. But a lot of that takes the um, intentionality of studying your child and or studying your students and knowing where they're at and taking what may look like a weakness and helping that become a strength. Yeah. So that's the trivium. And we've also talked about the transcendentals with lots of T words. So the trivium, the transcendentals, what, what exactly are the transcendentals? Yeah. So I'm going to probably throw this back on you because you're good at it, but the transcendentals are truth, beauty, and goodness. And again, we've introed our podcast listeners into these. Basically, if you're applying this to classical education, it's not just teaching facts and skills, but it's knowing the value and the nature of those and appreciating knowledge through the lens of what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. So these three things reflect the divine origin of all things and the unity of all truth and reality and God. And it's kind of hard to explain what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful because it's something kind of that you you come to you come to realize. You ask, is this true? You ask, is this good? Is this beautiful? And what are you comparing that to? You're comparing that to God, basically the ultimate truth, the yeah. ultimate good, the ultimate beauty. Yeah, it's hard to describe what is truth, beauty, and goodness <laughs> because they are in the most simple forms. And that's the whole point, that it's as simple as you can make it. It's not some uh, conglomerate like whole of a bunch of different things. It is the simplest form of being and describing what true being is, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm not being too... If it doesn't make sense, go read Awakening Wonder. I think that that was a very eye-opening. Yeah, Maybe, is there any other books that you would say on that? Um, we'll link these in the show notes. <laughs> Probably not books that but you would want to start with. Of, yeah, yeah. I, I would start with Plato. Read the Republic and all all the dialogues, not just the Republic. All the Socratics are worth reading, the Socratic Fathers. So Plato and Aristotle and all those, all the guys that you heard about in philosophy class that you probably just uh, didn't really care much about are worth reading. Um, you can learn a lot from those guys. And they have different differing thoughts. It's not all the same. They're not all saying the exact same thing, but they're all growing on one another. So Socrates says one thing, and then Plato, his student, kind of shapes and molds that a little bit more. And then Aristotle, Plato's mentee, I guess you'd call him, mm-hmm. um, learned from him and grew on that. And that's how the Western tradition has really grown. And then even Paul, who wrote right. most yeah. of the New Testament, you can see how his words and the things he says even relates back to things that they were saying. Yeah, yeah. Paul. It's very philo- philosophical. Yeah, he is definitely schooled in Greek thought and it wouldn't be called classical thinking back then, but that's really what it is. He, right. he, he was very familiar with the Socratic fathers and that kind of thinking and the Stoics and Epicureans and all that. But I think the Awakening Wonder book does a good job of ex- kind of explaining the truth, goodness, and beauty aspect as it, as 
it applies to classical education in specific. So reading Plato and Aristotle and all of them is going to be helpful, I think, as you dig in deeper. But if you're kind of like, I don't even know where to start, I think that Awakening Wonder book really is a good intro to it, you know? Yeah, yeah, especially if you are listening to this and haven't had a classical education, it's probably going to be hard to start somewhere. So I wouldn't, in this at that point, um, recommend reading primary sources as much. I would read some secondary sources. Or listen to some secondary sources. We did link the Plato and Augustine class, correct? Yeah, those, lecture, the last, those lectures are phenomenal. Yeah, in the last podcast, we linked those in the show notes, so go and listen to those. There's like 60, but they're short. You could get them done in like two months' time if you listen to one a day. Is that all we have for the Transcendentals? No. I, um, I just wanted to say, too, so the Transcendentals, when you're talking about truth, goodness, and beauty, you're basically you're pointing to Christ, you're pointing to God himself. So it's not just slapping Christ onto your education, which is what so many Christian schools do. Um, They basically just slap on Jesus at the end and call themselves a Christian school. Whereas a classical Christian school is seeing everything through God's glory and for his glory. And so you ask, is this beautiful? Well, why is it beautiful? Or why is it not beautiful? Does it attract people towards God? Or is it attracting people away from God? Does it shine unity? Does it shine wholeness? Is it also good and true? If you're asking if something is true, is it clear? Is it rational? Is it logical? Um, Is our mind in accord with reality? Is it also beautiful? Is it also good? If you're asking if something is good, then what is the purpose or the end of it? What would make it better? Would anything make it better? Um, How does it measure up? to God's plan as it as that's revealed in Christ is it also true and beautiful so basically I think when you're learning something ask these things is it true is it good is it beautiful and this is pointing you towards those virtues towards true justice towards true love which is really what I think our economy and our world is longing for you know they're longing for unity they don't know where to find it though yeah that's all I had. Um, a really, really helpful thing that I learned through those lectures when I was, well, I'm still at Knox, but when I was taking that class at Knox, um, my professor, Dr. Warren Gage, broke up the Transcendentals, Truth, Beauty, and Goodness into Plato's Tripartite Soul, mm-hmm. um, which Plato did that. I guess he didn't do that, but he, he had a really helpful way of breaking all that apart. And the way I kind of visualize in my mind the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, um, you might want to even rearrange them for this um, analogy, but can kind of just picture like a stick man or a person, a, a human being, um, and think of the head. Uh, the head part corresponds to truth, and Plato would call this the noetic part of the soul. So the tripartite soul just means the soul has three parts, and the truth part of the soul, the rational part of the soul is the noetic. It's kind of the heady, the, mm-hmm. the rationalistic, um, you're, you're thinking logically about things. Um, and it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be like cold logic chopping, but that's kind of what it gets down to. It's not so emotional. It's not spirited. It's, right. it's not all these things. It's bare truth. And then you have the thematic part of the soul, which is the middle part of 
the human being. That's where the heart resides. Your heart is there, and you can kind of think of the spirited part of the soul. That is goodness. That's what goodness corresponds to, the hardiness, what motivates a man to be courageous and to make bold stands and to do all these uh, valiant things for his family and so on, that kind of thing. Those, those kind of virtues correspond to the thematic, which again is the goodness. And then lastly, beauty, which is kind of confusing to some people. What is beauty? How do you even describe that? And uh, Plato, the way that he speaks about this, he says that that corresponds to the epithematic or sometimes called the appetitive part of the soul. And you can kind of hear where he's going with the appetitive. It is the part of the soul that corresponds to the appetites. So like your desires, your your feelings, and your emotions. And this is the lower region of the body. And not to be too graphic, but this corresponds to like the stomach, so like the guttural feelings, um, and also um, like the genitals. So as most of you know, uh, you have a lot of drive in, in that area. <laughs> and, and there's uh, strong feelings and emotions that kind of call and draw in people. And that's, that's really the whole goal of beauty is to call and draw in up towards the soul, moving up towards um, the heart, and then eventually to the head, connecting all of the human body together. Mm-hmm. And that is the function of beauty is to kind of yeah. be that first that first signpost towards truth it's the thing that stands out on the sidewalk calling you to come in it is wisdom showing its its beauty its attractiveness saying come in and see what we have for you and that's usually the way that people learn they interact mm-hmm. with truth not by cold bare logic chopping they usually see the beauty of some truth before they see its truthfulness so they see how overwhelmingly attractive it is and then they come to see as they move up towards the soul towards the heart this is really good this this makes a lot of sense you kind of be uh, you can be encouraged by it kind of think of that word encouraged being propelled and driven even further towards up eventually to where you're rationally thinking about something to where it makes sense like the logic checks out and not only is it beautiful not only is this good but it makes sense it is true mm-hmm. and that's generally the way that people learn and that that has just been really helpful for me thinking about truth beauty and goodness thinking through the lens of the human soul that's that's the way plato usually comes back to most things and he's he's the kind of the father of classical education it, it usually always comes back to plato when you're talking about classical education it, and it's because he's so insightful he he was very aware of how the human soul and the human body works and how that integrates into the world I really liked how you talked about beauty there too and how it it calls just as I think of how the Holy Spirit calls us into communion with him. You know, our eyes are opened. We are awakened to this wonder and the same kind of happens with education. At some point in time, when you became, when you started desiring something, when you started um, longing after something in education, probably it was probably because something was beautiful to you someone someone opened your eyes to something maybe it was a shared love of art or a shared love of language or a shared love of mathematics even though that seems really far-fetched for me (laughs) (laughs) Um, but someone probably showed you the beauty of education 
and that called you deeper in. And so I think that's why it's so crucial to have good teachers who are just really passionate about what they're teaching you and what, what you're learning. And if you are homeschooling, or even if you're not homeschooling as parents, it's our job to make education beautiful because like you said, it's not just giving them two times two is four isn't going to call them and like, isn't that so exciting? Don't you want to learn more math, you know? Um, But showing them the beauty of it might actually call them deeper into the educational realm. Yeah, and the Greek word for beauty is kalos. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of hear the word call there. Its function is to make people want the goodness and truth. That, That is its whole function is to draw people into that. And you can see it happen in all kinds of ways too. If the scary thing is, is if you drop off the truth and the goodness, and you have beauty in the wrong context, and Brie talked about this a little bit in her beautiful, beautiful women, women. Mm-hmm. Uh, podcast, I think. Um, if you distort some of the transcendental, if, I guess that'd be one way to think about it. Distorting the transcendentals, you can't really do that. But if you a if distortion you, of beauty. yeah, a distortion of beauty uh, would would misguide you it would make something attractive that is not actually true that is not actually good and there's all kinds of ways of doing this putting things in the wrong context is Mm -hmm. usually the way that works you can think about something like pornography like it's it's in the wrong context it's not that women aren't beautiful it's not that women aren't extremely attractive it's that when you put it in that context it's the wrong misguided beauty it's a false beauty but it still has this power to it Mm-hmm. to attract men um, and sometimes women too. It's it's a sometimes addicting and um, enslaving thing. Yeah. And that's the thing about beauty is that if it's in the right context, it's not going to enslave you. It's actually going to free you all the more. Mm-hmm. So is that all we have for Transcendentals? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, let's keep moving then. So why classical education at all? Why, why not modern education? Why not some other kind of education, why do we need to do classical education? Okay, so I think, again, it goes back to this is a timeless thing. It's proven to work. It's produced our greatest philosophers, theologians, doctors. Most of those people had a classical education, and it's also holistic. Um, It's not just focusing on one skill, but it's focusing on your whole, again, your whole body, your whole mind. Really, this classical education, it's been here all along, but around the 1900s, you know, we saw a big drop in it because progressive education started. We have modern education now, and I will say that classical education has been on the rise, and for good reason, because it's fundamentally different. So we talked about how its focus is on the liberal arts, and in um, the core, Lee... Lee Borton's, I think, yeah, Lee Borton's, she talks about how the liberal arts are the arts of a free people. So we're wanting to make truly free beings who are mastering these classical skills so that they're enabled to learn anything. I mean, you hear all, all around, you know, you can be anything you want to be, you can do anything you want to do, and that rubs me the wrong way. But there is some truth in the fact that if you have a classical education, you are equipped to learn anything you want to learn. But part of a classical ed- education, too, is focusing on the whole being. And so you're learning not just to go be a doctor because it makes the most money. Um, do you really desire that? You know, Do you desire to save people's lives, to see 
um, people flourish in their physical health? Do you desire to help people learn how to take care of their bodies and that sort of thing? So we see that modern education isn't really working. Statistics tell us that. Literacy rates tell us that. Test scores are telling us that. And schools, I don't want to only blame schools because our homes, our parents are to blame. There's a lot of different factors. But we see that modern education, we've seen since the 1900s, that it's not really working. And that's why so many people are going back to the classical education. So if the current system isn't working, why isn't it working? I think one of the reasons is the fact that in an effort to give free education to everyone, we've actually diminished what true education is. And I keep talking about, you know, this freedom to to make free individuals, but that is what true education does. It gives freedom and contentment to the individual, but the current system doesn't really want free humans. I think what the what modern education wants is they just want free education. We just want to keep pumping money to give education to everyone that we can. If we just put it out there more and more and more, we'll have more educated people. But we're finding that that's that's not working. And in doing this, we've actually enslaved people to education rather than these people being freed by education. So there's so many things that <laughs> that's wrong with modern education. But again, we don't want to simply fill heads with knowledge. We want education that teaches children how to think, how to reason, how to use their logic, and how to express themselves. And classical education does that. Classical education finds its relevancy in timeless truths. And I think a lot of, a lot of times people want to rely on modern education because we want to stay ever-changing and ever-relevant with the culture. But again, that's just, it's not really working. Yeah, humans don't change. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, people have the ability to change and reform as individuals, but as far as, like, what humans are, we're not evolving into some superior being. We are human beings, we've always been human beings, yep. and there's no need to reinvent the wheel every hundred years when it comes to education. If anything, we should just be looking at what we've done all along and seeing what works and then running with that, not trying and experimenting crazy stuff all the time and just doing these radical new ways of educating students. We should do what works. Yeah. The tried, the true. Yeah, and I like the classical education too because it focuses on the love of learning. And there's a quote in, I think it's Awakening Wonder. Yeah, it says, We enjoy things when we love them for their own sake. We use things when we love them for the sake of something else. So a classical mm-hmm. education values knowledge for knowledge's sake. And I like that. And you talked about how philosophically, like it's just different. It's not just more rigorous. Um, it's not just, you know, trying to make a bunch of pointy headed scholars. Right, right. So classical education, I think there's, there's a couple of misconceptions. I think the two biggest ones are one people think that classical education is just like the good old way like the good good american way like americans have done it this way for our super long history of 200 years (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and that it's working so so well and we should just get back 100 years uh, to when it was really the glory days and that's not classical education right um that might be early american education but that's not classical education 
and the other misconception is that classical education is just this prestigious way of doing the modern education only just really strict like you're just Mm -hmm. really really hard on students you're really firm and you're giving zero grace and just it's kind of like this pass or fail Mm -hmm. thing and only the the highest uh, and most promising students are even accepted into these really great academies whereas that's not really the case of classical, classical education at all like anyone can join in to a classical school especially if you're starting um, in kindergarten like yes yeah. you can just jump in yeah I mean you got to be able to keep up like if you're an awful student then you might not get accepted into a private classical Christian school but the point being is that it's not those two things it's not like the good old way and it's not just the really really strong firm way it's just a different philosophical approach so yeah and I, I think too like Mason is saying, really classical education can be for anyone. If it's intimidating to you or if you feel like you or your students are too far along in their education to now reform, I think you should read The Core, which I've quoted many a times by Bortons, because she had two boys who she started homeschooling not classically and then somewhere along the way came across classical education and really dove into it headlong and then had two more two more boys who she then started schooling classically and she even talks about the differences in um, her sets of boys but how how the younger boys did kind of have the advantage but even how the older boys came along and are now learning classical education and how her and her husband are learning all about classical education alongside you know her two younger boys Mm. so it doesn't matter what stage in life you are. It's never too late to start learning. I didn't have a classical education growing up, but I want that for my children, and I will just continue to learn alongside them, and I think that's great. Yeah, Bree and I both at certain points in our upbringing had Christian schooling, and some of yours may have been classical. You just may not have known it yeah, since two it was year, Catholic. Yeah, two years of mine, I think looking back was, um, it wasn't, truly classical but it was I mean if it was catholic it probably had some, it was it had a, hints a, of classical yeah, some for classical sure yeah influence but anyway neither of us were raised with a classical education it wasn't until adulthood and even just really a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that we started having any, any thoughts of classical education i don't know if i'd even really ever heard of it until i was in my mid 20s yeah that being said, anyone can jump into this. Whoever's listening to this podcast, don't be intimidated by classical education, thinking that it's too late because you didn't have a classical education growing up and that you don't have a great understanding about it yourself now, so you can't put your kids into something that you don't understand. Just jump into it. Get, grab a couple of these books and start reading about it. Obviously, you can't just start from Plato and work till now to understand what a classical education is. You're you're gonna have to read some secondary sources. Yeah, do that. It's it's fun and you can learn a lot along the way and you're gonna be able to learn with your children too. That's uh, what Bree was talking about a second ago. I think that's a really fun element to classical education is that you get to learn about the world with your kids. You're not mm-hmm. just pushing your kids through um, modern education that's just gonna hopefully get them a job one day and you're kind of removed from the whole thing, but you get to stand alongside your kids and see them interact with the world and get to interact with them and have that kind of wonder. 
Yeah, and I wanted to say something too there. Um, modern education, too, because of all of our advancements, some of this has happened in modern education to where now we're not as reliant on our minds to be the calculators mm. or to be the spreadsheet or to be the map or you know whatever it may be that we're needing. We're not taking food from seed to table, per se, in all aspects of our life. And so it's easy to go through our modern schools and not have to really memorize a whole lot because we can look it up on Google or we can pull out a calculator. Whereas back you know, years ago, we didn't have that luxury. And so our minds were our calculator. Our minds were our map. And we had to memorize these facts. And I think back then people knew what their minds were capable of. And we don't know that now. And so part of learning as a family and learning at home is doing that, is not so much relying on your Google, you know. And then something else too is classicalacademicpress.com, which I quoted earlier. Um, they have Ambrose School in Idaho, and they touch on kind of going into a deeper understanding of classical education, and they hit some of the common myths as well. So if you go onto their website here, you can go under, under what is classical education, and they even have a free course you can take for parents just as a guide to understand classical education better. And I'm sure there's other resources out there, but I, I trust this website and I trust this curriculum and uh, we'll link that in the show notes for you. Okay, so classical education. Hopefully you have at least a beginner's knowledge of what that is. So let's take it a step further. I don't know if we've talked about uh, classical Christian education or not, but that's what we're educating our children in. Mm -hmm. What is um, classical Christian education? Why add on the Christian? Yeah, so I think we should start with a quote from, again, the core, Borton's book. She says, It takes effort to enjoy classical culture, whether literature, music, painting, or other forms of art. But once understood, once the appetite is whetted, we are forever hungry for more. And I love that quote because education is what is shaping our children. It's pretty much their primary means growing up. I mean, whether you're sending them off to school and they're sitting in the seat for eight hours of the day, or they're at home going through four hours around your kitchen table, it's a huge part of their lives. And like I said in our previous episode, everything you're doing is either moving you towards Christ or away from Him. And there's no such thing as a neutral option. So, um, I think that's why a Christian education in specific is so important because, again, we're not just wanting to express ourselves like the world is telling us. The world is telling our children at the age of five and six to just take a canvas and take some paints and express themselves. But in a Christian classical education, we're actually telling them what the paints are for. We're teaching them about the colors. We're teaching them that this is a canvas and what paintbrushes to use. And we're giving them the grammar of that so that then when the creative juices start flowing, when they start getting older, they are able to express themselves and not just themselves, 
but to give glory to God. So the world is basically giving glory to themselves. It's really individualistic. It's really glorifying the self, whereas a Christian education is glorifying God in all that we do. And you can only do that by having a Christian-centered education. Right. The The problem with any other kind of education is that it misses the unifying story that holds it all together. So Mm -hmm. modern education and public schools isn't telling the one unifying story of the gospel. It's telling all kinds of different, sometimes conflicting stories, um, mostly centered on the self and self-realization, who you are. And Brie was talking about like painting a minute ago, like they sit you down and have you paint whatever just feels right. Um, and you kind of just sling paints on uh, a canvas and they call it art um, because what they're really glorifying is randomness, chance, mm-hmm. chaos. And that's why so much of like the crazy, crazy art that gets called art, it's not really art because it's not really beautifying or exalting anything other than randomness gets put into so many of these schools. Um, whereas a Christian education would say art should be glorifying what we can't see. Like what we try to paint, what we try to write songs about, what we try to make art for is to express what we know to be true, good, and beautiful, but you can't quite put your finger on it with just bare words. Um, It's hard to even describe what art is, but that's basically what art is. Art tries to touch the nerve of heaven and earth of like the true goodness uh, beauty and um, all of that that is unseen we're trying to make it seen in a way that is very difficult but that's really what art ultimately does it tells that one unifying story in all kinds of different ways but at the end of the day it's all telling that same story of what is true good and beautiful yeah and I like how you said that they're trying to you know, value chaos and, and that sort of thing. And, and they may not say that. They may not say that, but that, chance. But that's really kind of what they're doing. But it is. There's no order to it. And in Christianity, we know that God came into our chaos. He came in to the nothing and he created order. He brought order to that. You know what I mean? It's not just some chaotic, random chance. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we want to immerse ourselves in the truth. We want to immerse ourselves in truth, goodness, and beauty. And you can only do this by valuing a Christian education. And um, John fourteen six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, when it says um, in the beginning was the word, that word in the Greek there is logos, uh, which has tons of meaning packed into it, but it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with like logic and order. I don't know if that's what you were hinting at anyway, but that's Mm -hmm. what that verse really means is that God is the order of the universe. And when Christ comes into the universe, what he's really doing is starting the restoration of all things. Like chaos has happened because man has tried to build his own empire. Man has tried to build Babel. And what God is doing in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. And God is strictly speaking true or truth beauty and goodness so what christ is doing is uniting us 
to the transcendentals through Christ. That, that is the whole goal of Christian education is to tell that unifying story of the gospel where God, the, the true, the good, the beautiful, is coming to us and it would be impossible because we are so chaotic, we are so sinful, we have so much um, disorder to us, but because of who Christ is and what he's done, he unites heaven and earth in this one man, Jesus, who is the perfect man. This month's giveaway is brought to you by Billy Buttons. Billy Buttons is a small dried and preserved flower business based out of Southern Illinois. Abby Fenton is its founder, and she was inspired by all the beautiful dried flower trends that were popping up during her time in Australia. This month, she is giving away a small bundle full of bright pinks, yellows, and neutrals, which is perfect for midsummer decorations. I personally am a huge fan of dried florals because you can't kill them, they last forever, and you can rearrange them and put them in different spots in your house. So if you'd like to enter this month's giveaway, please go to our Instagram, House to Home, follow the prompts on our giveaway post. Be sure that you're following us and Billy Buttons, and happy winning!